whether you are learning to be a plumber, electrician, or a musician, or an artist, or a writer, that imitation is the foundation upon which innovation, creativity, elaboration, experimentation, that's possible. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So as we begin this podcast 74, Andrew has suggested that I tell a joke or sing a song instead of starting out the usual, hi, Andrew, but I really not comfortable singing on a podcast. So I'll spare you that. And as far as jokes, I think I'll ask the master to tell us a joke. Hey, Andrew, you want to tell us a joke? This is a truly horrible joke, but it's kind of literary. Is it about imitation? No, it's about a chicken in a library. Okay. And the chicken says, book! And so the librarian <laughs> gives the chicken a book. Chicken comes back, book, book! <laughs> librarian says, you want two books. Okay, here you go. Chicken comes back a while bit later, book, book, book! Oh, you want two books and a long book. Okay, here you go. Chicken comes back, book, 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 book! And the librarian thinks, what is the chicken doing with all these books? Right. <laughs> so librarian gives the chicken four books and then follows the chicken and it goes uh, down the path toward the creek near the library where there's a, a large bullfrog and the chicken puts out one book and the bullfrog says, read it, read it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's painful. <laughs> no, that was a good one. I just read an article on what happens to your brain when you hear puns. Okay. And essentially, it's good for the brain. You have a certain language logical expectation and then the the surprise the unexpected event the equivocal meaning of the word strikes the other hemisphere of the brain and then they're forced to resolve this so you you actually by listening to puns at least according to this article grow your brain ever so slightly oh very good integrating your two hemispheres so i guess that's probably why we view people who have a good sense of humor as being, I don't know, better to work with, more intelligent, more enjoyable. Well, definitely more enjoyable. (laughs) Yes. Well, and this sounds like we're about to have a conversation about humor, but we're really not. We're having a conversation today about imitation. Well, but it makes sense because how do you learn to be more humorous? Mm. You would imitate someone who's funny. That's true. You would practice telling jokes like the ones that you her here and like you in fact anything really that you want to learn you have to learn through imitation mm-hmm. so it's kind of this common sense thing people hear that statement and they think well duh young children learn to speak a language through imitating their parents sure that's why they speak different languages in different parts of the world and that's why they speak different dialects in mm-hmm. different parts of of a country that's why they pick up 
language patterns that allow you to identify them as, oh, that child must be in that family because they all have these particular little speech patterns you can identify. Very nuanced. So it's kind of this common sense, self-evident, yeah, we learn through imitation. So why even have a conversation about it? Right, because we do this with swimming, with sports in general, with because I was a swimming instructor. That's why I brought that up. Yeah. Swimming, art, music, music. Yeah, it's all about imitation. Any skill, anything you want to learn to do, you really have to learn it through imitation. Right. But the reason to even have the conversation is because, in many ways, the idea of imitation has been degraded in kind of the progressive modern educational attitude, which wants to embrace, in a way, creativity above imitation as being somehow superior. Right. right? Creativity, original thought, this is, this is what we need in the world. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite guys, and I don't know if you've ever seen him, Mike Rowe, mm. he had that show Dirty Jobs, I don't know if you ever saw that. And he would go out and work for a day with just like the most horrific job you could imagine and document this all mm-hmm. kind of on camera. And, and it was quite an excellent show. He's got a, a newer iteration of that called Someone's Got to Do It. Right. <laughs> Micro also has testified before the Congressional Committee on Labor. And he has a foundation that seeks to promote people pursuing some of the trades. Mm. He's kind of afraid this idea that, you know, everybody has to go to college. Everybody gets a white collar job. Everybody's a professional. Who's going to be left to do the plumbing and the electricity and the bricklaying and the building the roads and the infrastructure? And these are right. These are noble forms of work that modern society doesn't really recognize in the same way that we used to. So his work I find fascinating, but the quote he had, which I thought it's so, so important to contemplate, he said, innovation without imitation is a waste of time. Interesting. Innovation without imitation, a waste of time. He's not saying that innovation isn't important, but it has to rest on the foundation of imitation. And so, you know, whether you are learning to be a plumber, electrician, or a musician, or an artist, or an athlete, or homemaker, or a writer, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, where we go with the subject, that imitation is the foundation upon which innovation, creativity, elaboration, experimentation, that's possible. As you've heard me say many times, and in the Teaching Writing Instruction Style Seminar, I make this comparison with music. Mm -hmm. And I say, if we had taught music in this country the way we've taught writing for the last 30, 40 years, it would go kind of like this. Sure, come on in. I'd love to teach you how to play the piano. You can sit down. I'll tell you all the names of the notes and how to sit and push the keys and how to use the pedals and everything. But there is one little rule here. You can't play anything else you've ever heard anyone else play. You have to kind of make it all up on your own. Well, you know, to most people, that's self-evidently ridiculous. What type of musicianship would we get if you just sat down and fooled around at the piano for half an hour a day for five years? Yeah, you'd learn to play something. But compare that to 
following the pathway of imitation, where play this, play this like I play it, imitate me, imitate this recording, try to get to a level of perfection as close to the model here as you can, and do that again and again and again, and develop that foundation of basic skills. And then on that foundation, a few years from now, we'll talk about interpretation, Mm -hmm. variation, composition, Mm -hmm. improvisation. But in music, it's pretty clear to everyone that the way to acquire the skill is to imitate on a particular pathway. Right. Because you could hand someone a violin and say, here, imitate Joshua Bell playing the Tchaikovsky Concerto. (laughs) Well, that ain't going to work. No. Instead, okay, here's a violin, here's a recording, here's a teacher. Let's start with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Mm -hmm. That has the potential. So this natural understanding of the value of imitation that we have in some areas, sadly, has not continued in in the areas where it's needed, particularly, as we find, in writing instruction. Right. And there did seem to be kind of a shift from, let's take a classical approach, let's imitate good writers, let's have disciplines, let's use models to follow and internalize, to writing is about self-expression. Right. So express yourself, how you feel, your thoughts, your ideas. And it, it kind of lost universally some of its rigor in that process and then shifting over more about you, the center of the universe kind of thing. It's a, it's a, a, a modernism, a postmodernism. Unfortunately, when it affects education, then students that come through that often don't develop the good solid skills they need in the real world. Right. Because I don't think too recently in our company here, we've asked anyone to just please express your feelings. (laughs) You know, tell how you feel. Express yourself in this thing you need to write. No, it's communicate clearly what we do, how we do it, why we do it, what this product is, what our processes are. Communicate in a clear, organized, articulate, and if you can, nice, beautiful way, but we don't really care how you feel about it all. <laughs> right. you know? I'm not trying to undermine or downplay the value of writing as a cathartic activity, mm-hmm. writing poetry, which mm-hmm. very much more is about expressing kind of more inexpressible types of things through sure. words creating images, expressing feelings, there's value there. But when you go to the one extreme and ignore the other, then what happens is you lose the foundations. And so now what do we have? We've got, you you can't talk to a businessman who has to hire high school and college graduates that won't complain about lack of good communication skills, writing, speaking. Right. You can't talk to a college professor who won't, point out the fact that the students in their classes writing seems to be kind of getting worse year after year. Even in the good schools, you have top students whose writing is really not up to the to the par, to the quality or standard of what, say, those same professors had 20, 30 years ago. Right. So 
why do we get involved in the conversation? I think to underscore this, I will tell you about a little conversation I had once. I was at a conference, and there was a girl, she's 20 years old. She was enrolled in a, a university in California. I don't remember exactly which one. And she came to talk to me, and, and she said, you know, I really want to be a good writer. I want to, I, I want to be a professional writer. I want to be as good as I possibly can. What's your advice for me? Right. What do you think I should do? And I said, well, here's what I'd suggest. I would go find your 10 favorite authors, authors that you think are really great, and just make a list of 10 of your favorite writers. It can be primarily fiction, or it could be commentary, it could be essayists through history, whatever you like, whatever you think is really good. And then go through each of those authors and try to write some compositions in the style of those authors. So if you like Dickens, try to write a short story and sound like Dickens. If you like Chesterton, try to write an essay and make yourself sound like Chesterton. And we do teach this in our Unit 7. We do. Teaching, writing, structure, and style teacher course. We do. And it's actually one of the most enjoyable classes yeah, the that kids love I that. ever teach. The yep. kids love this idea. And, you know, you can imitate the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. You can imitate Uncle Remus and Br'er Rabbit. <laughs> right. You can imitate Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And and I kind of explained this idea that if if you were to take your 10 top authors and write a few compositions and try to imitate each of those 10, you would gain this repertoire of ways of writing things. You'd Mm -hmm. have more variety, greater vocabulary, lots of kind of options that you're now more familiar with, and that this is what I would do if I wanted to become a, a... you know, the best possible writer that I could be. Right. And she just looked at me mm-hmm. with this kind of shocked, blank, open mouth stare. Okay. And she finally said, that is exactly the opposite of what our teachers in college say, hmm. which is, don't ever imitate anyone. And I thought, well, okay. There you have it. Right. A, a classical approach based on what we know has worked through pretty much all of history versus this progressive idea that in imitating, you're somehow going to harm your own individuality or self-expression. Right. When I think about like the six traits of writing, which is now six plus one, one of the traits is voice. Right. And they're supposed to find their own voice. Sure. Right. And that probably requires learning someone else's voice and then do variations on that to be able to write with their own voice. But really, that's probably the least effective. Just like you said, you know, when I have my assistant helping me write the newsletter, I I like the way that she writes, but I like that it conveys accurately what she's hoping to convey. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, I, I'm an adult. I'm getting on the old side of being an adult. And what we find is that we do develop kind of our own mm-hmm. favorite ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That becomes our, our voice, our kind of 
more identifiable style. Well, we have enough years under our belt. At 50 plus, we can actually claim that. But I think even for those of us who are older and do enough writing that we kind of have our way of doing things, Mm -hmm. it's good to challenge that every once in a while Mm -hmm. and say, here, try something different. I met a woman once. uh, She came to my seminar. She was teaching high school English. She had worked as a professional editor for years and as a journalist, and now she was teaching high school English, and she, she did the first uh, practicum session where we have to, you know, we force the teachers in the teacher training to use the stylistic techniques. Right. And then the second practicum, we add in more stylistic techniques. And, and at the end of the day, she said, this is really good for me. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I'm glad to hear that. What, in what way? She said, it's so easy for us as writers to just get in a rut and always do things the same way. And this has really challenged me to look at other ways to say things. And I don't normally do that anymore because I'm pretty old and set in my ways. Right. So having you know our models and checklists, I mean, when we think about imitation and writing, there's a few ways that you can build on that idea. Mm-hmm. The first and simplest thing would be just to copy what someone else wrote. Right. Now, a lot of people might say, well, what's the value of that? You well, know, there's what, some problems with that, too. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're just copying what someone else wrote. But interesting, one of the great English authors, Somerset Maugham, mm. he used to copy by hand the King James Version of the Bible mm-hmm. every day for a while for a few reasons. The beauty of the language, the poetic nature, the vocabulary. It, copying something becomes a contemplation of the thing that you're copying. So there's value in, in the content and the prose. But you're actually storing those language patterns in your mind in a, a much deeper way than you would if you just heard it. Right, right. And then, of course, there's the famous idea of, of Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. who took the short hints of the sentiment in each sentence of an article from the Spectator magazine and then tried to reconstruct those same ideas. Right. So that's one step away from copying, but it's still imitation. It's, it's modeling your language, maybe even the logical progression of ideas, and so, you know, he found value in doing that. He even did, and this is kind of interesting, he had his notes from the short hints of the sentiment in each sentence. A keyword right? outline. He had a keyword outline yeah, right. of his Spectate article. And then he intentionally messed them up. He, he mixed up the order of the ideas, mm-hmm. set it by a few days, and then tried to reorganize those ideas. Interesting, yep. So now he wasn't just imitating the vocabulary and the syntax. He was also trying to reconstruct the logical sequence of ideas, training himself in that way. And so we can look at imitation in that way as well. Another thing that we can do is look at a model Right? So if you take some essay that someone wrote and you kind of figure out, okay, what did he do first? Mm-hmm. What did he do second? What did he do next? And make kind of a little 
structural outline of some essay, then you could take maybe a different subject, but you could parallel that structure, and that becomes a model. And by imitating the model, you're learning one way to organize and structure something. And of course, that's what we do. I mean, it's not an accidental thing that our course is called Teaching, Writing, Structure, and Style. Exactly. And so when we provide for children, here's the model, basic though it may be, Mm -hmm. follow this story sequence chart, you'll get a better story. Right. Right. Follow this idea of topic-based paragraphs, you'll get a better report. Follow this essay format, and you'll get more persuasive writing. And so there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if anything, the students we know from having interviewed many of them now, yes. growing up doing structure and style for you know two, three, four, five years in middle or high school or whenever they did it, they go off to kind of the, the real world of the random instructor at the random university teaching a comp class or getting a job working for doing an internship for a senator or something, discovering, wow, what I learned during those torturous years <laughs> yes. of, of models and checklists really works in the real world. It's the foundation mm-hmm. that allows them then to be effective and creative above their peers who didn't have that foundation. Right. So I, I actually have two questions for you comments or questions, you talked about copying and then taking the short hints and set of sentiment, the keyword outline. At what point, and then just using the model, at what point is it plagiarism? Because we sometimes get accused of plagiarism. What is plagiarism? Well, and I have an article mm-hmm. written on this. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it, it's good to put it in the right context. Exactly. So there's really three forms of plagiarism that you could could kind of divide or identify. The first would be literal plagiarism. And that's where you just copy out of the encyclopedia and call it your report. Call it your report. You know, that's when you cut and paste and put your name on the top and you didn't rewrite, you didn't paraphrase much, or if you did, it was so minimal as to be not unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And that's generally because of either a lack of confidence or an ability to know how to do anything other than that. Right. Or it's the result of a character flaw, laziness, or sometimes maybe just desperation, you know, a lack of time. The things do, I have to get it done. I don't, you know. So that literal plagiarism, that's mostly what teachers are concerned Mm -hmm. with. And so much so that now some high schools and most colleges will take papers electronically and run them through a database of a million papers. Right. And if there's, you know, a certain percentage word repeat, it'll flag it as possible plagiarism. Right. Or you could, you know, see something that a student wrote that sounded just so good. Mm -hmm. You think, could this student really have written that? Just type it into, you know, a, a search engine and discover, oh, they cut it from right. Wikipedia or wherever. Exactly. So certainly that is something we want to be very careful about. Second type of plagiarism would be academic plagiarism. 
And that's essentially where you might take someone else's idea and put that into a paper, an article, a presentation, or something, and not give credit to where that idea came from. Right. And so that would be kind of an academic mm-hmm. plagiarism. And, of course, that can happen, too, sometimes inadvertently. You may have heard an idea, mm-hmm. and it's a great idea, and you want to put it in your paper, but you don't really know where it came from. You mm-hmm. don't have the time or wherewithal to check. You can't give credit where credit is due, and so you, you get caught because mm-hmm. someone else noticed, hey, that's not your, really your mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. What I, you've heard me say, though, I'm not sure that anyone really has a completely new idea that even the person from whom you got the idea possibly got that idea from somewhere else and that most ideas could probably be tracked back quite a ways especially if you're dealing with you know conceptual things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pedagogy philosophy right you know uh, theology you know where did that come from well it's possible it came from Aristotle, right? You know, <laughs> twenty five hundred years ago. So we can't. I think we can't be too extreme in worrying that every single idea source be, is documented. Right. But the higher you go in higher education, the more that becomes important. Absolutely. In fact, my son in law Jeremy, who just uh, finished kind of a doctoral level thesis program for his mm-hmm. STL degree. He said that every single thing had to either be quoted directly Mm. or it had to be so rewritten that you were hardly using any of the same words as the original. Otherwise, it could be construed as plagiarism. And, of course, he said that's kind of tough because if you quote everything directly, then half your paper is just quotations. And if you try to rephrase things and change all the words, it's hard to do that without mutating the idea you're trying to to transfer exactly exactly so we may be in some cases in higher education getting a little extreme on this then of course there's commercial plagiarism and that's where i take something and Mm -hmm. sell it yep and and get remuneration for that thing i sold without giving credit to whoever actually first wrote it or produced or created it and and again that can be kind of a fuzzy area because how do you own certain ideas? You know, you can patent certain things, you can trademark certain things, you can copyright certain things, but then other things, well, you didn't really think of it either. So So it's a big fuzzy world of plagiarism. But what I find interesting is that our system really leads people away from plagiarism naturally while we start with keywords from every sentence, and you rewrite that fable, you rewrite that article, you rewrite that content, and it sounds suspiciously like the original. Sure, That's just the very first step in our whole process. So yeah, if you stop there and said, here, take this skill to high school or college, you might get in trouble with that. But we don't want anyone, you know, stopping at unit two. Right. Because then in unit three, what we see is, oh, you're not taking keywords from every sentence. You're retelling a story. Right. Because you have a lot of freedom in the way that you retell that story. Right. So when you were talking earlier about learning music and playing precisely what is written on the page, 
for sometimes years. Our system doesn't take years to get to that level, does it? No. In fact, you know, with a upper elementary middle school student, you should be able to get through eight or all nine of the units in one school year. So then unit five, writing from pictures, now there's no language to imitate. There's right. no there's no verbiage to reproduce even in keywords. All those keywords have to come from your own from your own production, from what you carry around in your mind. Right. And then of course with unit seven, which is inventive writing, there's no source text. And and then those skills that are developed in unit three, five, and seven, those combine with the ability to collect and present facts in units four and six, and those make their apex, if you will, the climax of the whole syllabus really is that unit eight, where you are collecting up facts and telling what you think about them, or having an opinion and collecting and presenting facts to support that. And, and in, oftentimes in a very clever and creative way. Well, and that's where the style techniques come yes. in. The stylistic techniques checklists really promote variety in writing. Mm-hmm. They really promote the need to not say it exactly the way you read it over here because, ooh, now you have to add in these phrases or clauses, these word usages, these literary decorations, figure out a place to put a triple pattern. We keep kids so busy in every <laughs> paragraph that it would be hard for them to find something to copy too closely and have it have it meet the demands of the checklist. Right. In fact, I was telling Dr. Webster about this problem of modern plagiarism in the modern university. Yes. And you know, he's been he, he's not been teaching for almost 20 years and he didn't even use a typewriter. Right. He wrote all the books he wrote longhand. Wow. Gave it to a typist and had her type it up. And of course, in his day, in the 60s and 70s, it was hard to find a paper to steal because nobody wanted to give you their papers. And even if you did, you'd have to retype the thing because you couldn't really use a photocopy machine. Whereas today, you can just Google up. There's a database of one and a half million papers on every subject you could imagine, and you just buy it for 20 bucks. Or you can even pay someone in India... $10 $10 a page to write a completely original paper to your assignment in school. So I was explaining this and the frustration of the college yeah. professors that have to deal with this, and even at the high school level. And he just laughed. He said, well, that would never work with my system. Why? Well, the Webster Level 3 checklist in his university class had 88 things you had to do in every paper for that <laughs> class, including dress-ups, openers, topic clincher, decoration, triple, in every paragraph, right. and a whole mess of other stuff. And he said, even if you bought a paper, right. <laughs> you'd still have to rewrite the whole thing to, to get an A in my class right. because of the checklist. So in a way, our checklists are an anti-plagiarism device because the students aren't going to find things written with the grammatical word usage elements, literary points that we are trying to teach and require. Right. So in a way, while we start with this very strict imitation, the system moves students toward innovation and creativity by its nature. 
Right. And, and the teachers don't even have to work so hard. And certainly they don't have to cheerlead the students into be unique, be original, be creative, express yourself, <laughs> have your voice, develop your voice. Yes. But none of that ever works. Right. So. Yes. So what we have is the best of both worlds. We, we have a system that's based on imitation, but leads very naturally into creativity. And I want to just finish up with one little story, because to me, this this is very poignant and powerful. One of the great cellists of the last century was Milosevic Rostropovich, mm. Russian. And he had the opportunity to study with Pablo Casals, arguably the greatest cellist who ever lived, but certainly one of the greatest musicians and humanitarians of the 20th century. So this is a story I, I don't know where it came from. I'm not plagiarizing. <laughs> I just heard it. Even if it's not true, it might be very instructive. But here's the way it goes. Rostropovich goes to Casals, who has him practice a Bach partita. Okay, for a world-class musician, this is a pretty basic piece of music. Okay. One of the cello Bach partitas. And he's, he's having him play it in a very precise manner, imitating Casals to, to the finest degree of you know, the length of the node and the, the dynamics, the crescendos and decrescendos, the articulation, the bowings, even to the level of the speed of the vibrato. Oh, wow. Right? Week after week after week, <laughs> Casals is, is working with Rostropovich to play this partita exactly like Casals plays it. And after several weeks, Rostropovich is getting a bit frustrated. <laughs> right. Can I try something else, please? Finally, mm -hmm. Rostropovich comes in and plays this thing exactly like Casals has played it. Mm -hmm. And Casals then says, let me play for you. And he plays the same Bach partita in a completely different way. Oh, no. Completely different bowings and articulations and dynamics and speed and pacing and vibrato. Everything completely different than the way he had played it consistently every week before then. And then he said to Rostropovich, Go find your own partita. Mm. What a great story. Mm -hmm. That once he could imitate to that level of precision, he then had the skills, the capacity to innovate, to be creative, to, to do something differently than perhaps anyone had done with a Bach partita. Right. So I just think that illustrates so beautifully that idea of, of the value, the high artistic value of imitation as the foundation for innovation, creativity, and development. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.